Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album, and sometimes, like tonight, talking about off-Broadway musicals. So, Paul, this is this is obviously very different for us in terms of uh, content. Yeah, but uh, but very very cool. So, several months ago at this point, was it? Yes, it was uh, early January. Early, okay. So you know, almost. Uh, what's the, I can't even do math. Probably three, three months, months ago. Yeah, three months ago, you uh, you saw Les Mis in Philadelphia. Um, you were very very excited. You uh, you. You had some wonderful things to say about it, and you let me know that you had multiple pages of notes that you had written on this. And then I informed you that I was going to see Late Miz um, here in in April, and you said, "Perfect, let's do a podcast on it." <laughs> and me, being me, said, "Absolutely, why would we not?" So um, you know, it, and I, obviously, you know, when when we were young and impressionable. Les Mis was all the rage. Mm. And and I was looking. It, actually, Les Mis premiered um, in 1980, September of 1980. Wow. In, in Paris. So it had already, you know, had a, a decent life by the time we were old enough to get into it. Um, I don't know when you got into it. I don't, I don't think I got into it until I was probably 18, 19, 20, somewhere in that region. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I, so I started getting into it in high school because as my children often enjoy making fun of me about, I was very ingrained in the um, drama club and the musicals at my high school, as well as choir. And yes, and so, you know, Les Mis, you know, was, uh, was like you said, all the rage when we were going through high school, they were winning awards, Tony awards. They had the, the London cast uh, soundtrack was out or, or recording. There was a, um, the original cast came to Broadway to kick it off. And uh, it was, it was crazy. And then I want to say not too long after, and it may actually have been, you know, when we were graduating high school is when I think they started touring, um, even though it was still playing in New York they began a touring company that would go across the nation and uh, sprinkle the, the brilliance of Les Mis everywhere. I seem to recall in, um, and like I said, you know, with, with a bunch of, of that kind of stuff, you know, I was always a little bit behind the curve with you guys, but I want to say it was, um, it was Marie who got me to go to see Les Mis, I think. And, but anyway, I remember somehow I wound up with a Les Mis beach towel. Wow. In, in one of, one of my dorm rooms, <laughs> one, one of, one, I have no, unbelievable. I have no clue, but I, I have vivid memories. So my sophomore year, my roommate moved out at the Christmas break, so I spent the spring semester in a double completely by myself. 
And I had this Les Mis beach towel stuck onto the wall as like a tapestry <laughs> over over my old roommate's bed. Uh, yeah, I don't know why I remember that, but but I do. Huh. So I was, um, you know, you had you had mentioned winning awards, and I thought, hey, let's let's see what kind of awards that Les Mis has won. I love it. And you know, thanks to the to the wikis, we can do that. So the original West End production, um, and I don't think this is complete because it doesn't actually start until 1985. They were nominated for Best New Musical, did not win, um, and also nominated for Best Actor in a Musical for Colm Wilkinson. Oh, yes. And Alan Armstrong, those were both nominated, did not win. Unbelievable. Who won that year? I, I don't know. Um, we can. Was it the Phantom of the Opera? That, that's probably what it was because Andrew Lloyd Webber. I, I, I don't know. We'll that's to... insane. Well, Colm, I don't know about that because, yes, Colm, those two guys were the original Javert and, or um, Jean Valjean and Javert. All right. Whew. Goodness. I can't believe they didn't win. That's, that's, uh, that's crazy. Well, in 1985, Patti LuPone won for Best Actress in a Musical. Hmm. And then in 2012 and 2014, the, um, the production won the Laurence Olivier Award for Audience Award for Most Popular Show. That, that makes sense. How can you win a show in 19, oh, an award in 1985 when your show comes out in 1980? That's what I, I don't know that this is um, complete. But this is just the information that I have at my hand. It, it's now, like going back and it's like saying this year, hey, guys, we're going to we're going to give an Emmy to um, or uh, not an Emmy, a Grammy to uh, 2112 for uh, yeah. platinum. <laughs> so, well, but that was the original West End production. So oh. if, if it opened in Paris, it may not have wound up in London until 1985. Seems like a technicality, but OK. And apparently in 1987, it came to Broadway. There you go. That would make that would be why it was all the rage when we were juniors and seniors in high school. Yeah, that, that would make sense. So in 1987, the 1987 Tony Awards, Les Mis won Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Original Score. It won Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Michael McGuire huh. um, and Francis Ruff. Ruffell won for Best Performance by a Featured Actress. It also won Best Direction of a Musical, Best Scenic Design, and Best Lighting Design. It was also nominated for um, Best Performance by a Leading Actor for, again, Colm Wilkinson. He yeah. missed out again. Oh. And Terrence Mann. And Judy Kuhn was also nominated. And the Best Costume Design was also nominated for Tony's. Additionally, in 1987, there were, oh, poor Colm, he got shafted again in the Drama oh. Desk Award Outstanding Actor category. He couldn't even get a Drama Desk Award? Jeez. He could not get the Drama Desk Award. Um, and Judy Kuhn also missed out on a Drama Desk Award. Unreal. But Les Mis did win for Outstanding Musical, um, Outstanding Feature Actor, so Michael McGuire won that one again. Outstanding orchestration, outstanding music, and outstanding set design. 
Not to be complete, there was the 2013 Toronto Revival, and apparently they give Dora Awards in Toronto. Huh. And Les Mis only won Outstanding Female Performance for Melissa O'Neill and Outstanding Costume Design. And nominees who did not win were Outstanding Male Performance. There were three of them, Ramin Karimlu, Mark Ure, and Aiden Glenn. Outstanding Production, um, Outstanding Direction, Outstanding Scenic Design, Outstanding Light Design, Outstanding Choreography, and Outstanding Ensemble. 2014 saw a Broadway revival, and it was nominated for four Tony Awards, Best Revival of a Musical, Best Performance by a Leading Actor for Raymond Karimlu, Best Sound Design of a Musical, Mick Potter, and Outstanding Revival of a Musical. Oh, that was a Drama Desk Award. Huh. It didn't win any of those in 19, or 2014. Mm, wow, okay. However, in 2014, there was also an Australian Revival. Jeez. And it, it, won, it won the Green Room Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role for Hayden T., and in 2015, it won Helpman Awards for Best Musical, Best Male Actor for Simon Gleason, Best Female Actor in a Supporting Role for Carrie Ann Greenland, Best Lighting Design, and Best Sound Design. So, there. Huh. Well, that is pretty comprehensive. I wonder if they're going to get another slew of awards for the latest reinvention of Les Mis now. I don't know. I think it's a little bit um, crazy that they have that that much, but I think we should see if we can dial up Colm Wilkinson and see if, and see how he feels about. It. I think he's eighty four now. You think um, so? I just well, you know, we can uh, we can do that. So we should see. find out why you know, what he feels like about the fact that he's been gypped. So I mean, he's oh sorry, he's seventy three. Seventy three. He was born in forty four. I don't see anything on his, his wiki page that talks about uh, awards. Maybe he Yeah, because apparently he didn't win any. That's, that's not right at all. Well, I'll tell you this, that despite the lack of accolades that he may have received in the form of hardware, he will always be the timeless voice of Jean Valjean, that arching falsetto bring him home that you know everybody hears that reverberates like that is his voice i don't think there has ever been anyone better at that than uh than him it's almost like they wrote that for him i mean it's it's incredible so let's see um what we should do joe is we should get him we should interview him just to get his take on things and then um we should give him an award and uh, and send him a Les Mis beach towel as his uh, as his prize. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, with the, with me being the way I am, I would not be surprised if I don't still have that. It would be great if you had that. All right. So let's see who won best. Perf okay. Um, best performance by a leading actor in a musical. So Colm, in 1987, lost the Tony to Robert Lindsay for Me and My Girl as Bill Snibson. What? I'm just telling you what I see, man. Where are those clowns now, I wonder? 
Yeah, that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair question. So it is a timeless musical about love, courage, and hope. I'm pretty sure I wrote this down off of, uh, off of the website for the for the current touring uh, thing. It's okay. the it's the enthralling story, and I love this because it, it, this is exactly it, and this is what I love about Les Mis. It is the enthralling story of broken dreams, unrequited love, passion, sacrifice, and redemption. A timeless testament to the survival of the human spirit. I mean, now, who, does, who doesn't love a good tale about the human spirit? Exactly. And this is, I know why I wrote this down, Joe, because the whole night that I, that I was driving home after seeing this and the whole morning and the, the at morning at work, I was trying to figure out why before anything even happened at the show, I was crying. Okay. Really? Like I've been known to weep at different parts of Les Mis. But seriously, the opening scene on the chain gang, I was already starting to weep. And I, I don't think I've ever shed more tears uh, than I did at this, this last go around. And I'm sure it has something to do with my current state of mind and, and state of affairs in life. But I think it is as I become more ripe in age, I... I can I can sort of uh, connect a little bit more with this whole idea, and this is very dramatic, but this whole idea of the survival of the human spirit. How you know, it's it it seems as as though at times in life your dreams are meant to be broken. Like that's the only reason we have them. To and and all of the things that we go through in life the sacrifices we make, we seek redemption for the things that we've done wrong in the past. And, and, and through it all, no matter how difficult things get, there is something within us all that just pushes forward as though even after all of this, I can still move on. Even, even after it's all said and done at the end of the musical, when, when, Valjean, you know, is in hiding and he just figures that he completely messed up everything and was a complete failure. Cosette shows back up with Marius and and gives him the final redemption. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I think that it it, it rings true every single day of life. And um, I think that's why I wrote that, because it just really was powerful this time around for me. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I totally get that. Um, you know, there, just the way that whole story is presented and, you know, I don't, I don't have the memory that you have. So I don't know that I remember much about prior stage productions I've seen. Um, you know, I, I saw this a lot back in the day. I bet, I mean, a lot for me, I'm sure you probably saw it twice as many times, but I'm, I'm guessing I probably saw it four or five times, you know, throughout you know, the, the, uh, the 90s. Yeah, I, th I think that's about all the times that I saw it, too. Um, you know, tickets were expensive back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't, we didn't really have that. And, and so while I remembered the, 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 the basic story and everything else, mm. um, I purposefully, you know, it had been a long time since I had, had 
seen or even listened to this, and I purposefully did not listen to my my CD mm. prior to this because I wanted okay. to go in kind of cold. Right. And um, and you had mentioned even beforehand that there were some aspects of the staging that, that mm. you really liked. And, um, you know, long way of saying, you know, one of the things that really sort of resonated with me and I liked the way it was staged certainly had to do with, and, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but how they brought back deceased characters onto the stage for those um for empty chairs and em empty tables, right? And, and with with uh, Valjean when when um, when Fantine and, and um, Eponine come back, and it, mm. I, I just I found the way that that was done to be extraordinarily powerful. Oh yeah, I don't remember how it was done back in the day. I don't remember it resonating with me in that way, but I mean. This time it was it was powerful. Well, you know, so let's just jump right into it. There were a lot of scenery changes and and production changes. In fact, they said it was a glorious new staging and dazzling reimagined scenery that was inspired by Victor Hugo paintings. So that that's what we've got going in here. But I'm just going to jump right to the two things that you said because they they were. Um, so the, the way that they brought in the deceased characters, like you said, to me, the biggest difference and, and who knows, maybe I just wasn't as sensitive to this in my younger days, but you know, they all, they use this bright white light and the white gowns for the, for those who've passed away when, when they return. But when they, when, when you said when Fontaine and, and Eponine come back at the end and they begin to sing, there was an unmistakable wash of reverb that just almost made their voices sound ethereal. Like it, it, it didn't even sound like they were on stage. It just kind of came around you. It was really, it was kind of eerie and very cool all at the same time. And um, it was, it was exactly like you said, like they, they were coming back from, from, uh, from the afterworld. Incredible. Well, so it, and, it's very funny to hear you describe that because in the production that I saw in Dallas, and we're going to have to compare notes to see if it was like the same um, cast and whatnot. Yeah. But, but it was the exact opposite. So when characters would, would die on stage at that point is when the lights would go into that stark white. Yes. Well, that's true too. Yes. They, that's yeah. But, but but when they came back, they were always in a very a much softer, almost orange light hmm. that was very very soft, and so it created sort of the illusion that you know they weren't quite there. Yeah, and I'm will I'm willing to go with your your memory on that since it was just two nights ago, um, <laughs> and I I may have been dis distracted by all the reverb. Um, yeah. That's um that's that's very cool. The the other the other thing that was that was really different. So it's funny you bring up empty chairs and empty tables, right? So when he sings that song, he's not in the bar or the pub or whatever it was that they you know that they have their scene in, which is kind of like that doesn't even make any sense. He's singing about, you know, here they talked of revolution. Here it was. They lit the flame, right. empty chairs at empty tables. You're not even there. You know, you're, there, there aren't empty chairs at empty tables because there aren't any chairs and tables in the room. Cause you're not there. 
you know, so, <laughs> so it really was kind of, and it was distracting too. There are a couple of things in this, in this, that's distracting and, and people in the palaver audience may be really, you know, being like, wow, I can't believe how much these guys know about Les Mis. It's a little scary, but um, it was a little distracting. Some of these, um, you know, cause you should be singing, you know, in the room where they hatched the, uh, the revolutionary dreams to begin with. But when they all came out at the end and there were all those candles on stage and the way oh. it all ended, it was like, yes. like you could hear a freaking pin drop in that place. It was awesome. Well, and, and, you know, let's let's talk about those candles because, you know, the, the female chorus puts those candles out there. Yes. You know, and, and so they're they're out there as Marius starts to, to sing. And then, you know, the 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 spectral choir comes out, which was very, very cool. And then as they start to sort of dance around the chairs and tables that aren't there, and then they all wind up next to one of these things and they lift up the candles and it was just like, you know, mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. It was so, so well done, you know, and, and, you know, we, we jumped way too far ahead in, into this, but yeah, that's okay. We're not going to go scene by scene. I hope. Yeah. No, (laughs) but you, you had mentioned, um, you know, when, when the chain gang opened, and yeah, yeah. The, you know, I love that, that melody is probably my favorite in okay. this. And yep. so it always gives me kind of the goosebumps when they open with that. And then obviously I love it when they use that melody throughout, you know, for different, different yeah. things. Every time it comes back up, I'm like, yes. Yeah. And like one of the most powerful uh, parts is when, uh, Valjean is carrying Marius and he bumps into um, Javert and he basically tells Javert, you got to let me go. And he like screams it, you know, look down, you know, he's standing in his grave. It's yeah. like, yeah. But, but, you know, the, the chain gang thing, like they were rowing a boat. Um, it seemed. Yes. So they were kneeling and they were like rowing somewhere. And, you know, it seems hard to sing the line, uh, look down, look down, you're standing in your grave when you're actually kneeling and, you know, paddling water. It just seemed a little odd to me. I, yeah, I'm glad you said that because I felt the same way. I'm like, why are they in a boat? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was really distracting. And it's almost, it, you almost scratch your head and wonder, like, is it is it laziness like did they not like could could the guys not get the the um the motion of the chain going down so they had to go with the paddles instead and it even says in the synopsis that you know after 19 years on a chain gang well that's just weird to me so um that was a little strange um and i have to say like through most of these uh differences there's always an upside i didn't really find the upside in the chain gang uh change of blocking and everything seemed weird yeah that you know but i think that was for me that was probably the one thing um that kind of stuck out a little bit um you know as as sort of incongruous Mm. um another thought that i i had throughout this now and we had talked before we we opened the recording about you know whether or not you had seen the movie i have not seen the movie you have not seen the movie i have not read the book i'm never going to read the book it's like long well and and it's interesting so i made i made the very snarky comment as we were leaving 
and it it's through no fault of her own. But there's nothing in this musical production that gives us any indication as to why everyone is falling over themselves for Cosette. Huh, it's true. <laughs> you know, and not that she's not worthy or anything else. And, and I have a sneaking suspicion that perhaps in the book her character is fleshed out tremendously. Maybe so. But in the musical production, there it literally, it's just like, here she is, and... You know, Valjean, and I can, you know, being a father, I can get where Valjean would do anything for her, but there's no indication why Marius would be head over heels. And I mean, a lot of people go through, well, not a lot, at least two people go through a lot of pain and heartache on her behalf. And yeah. She, she doesn't really do anything. It's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, the whole Cosette thing is, is an interesting point, Joe. Never thought about that before because. You know, it's that juxtaposition of, you know, she gets sent out at a young age to live with Ternardier and is uh, shacking up there with them. And Eponine is like her stepsister for a little while. And Eponine, they use all the money to treat Eponine wonderfully well and treat her to dress her up and all that stuff. While Cosette is the little maid and has to, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, and Valjean comes in and saves her, brings her back home, and then all of a sudden she wants for nothing, and she's well-educated, and she has everything, and she's she's beautiful, and Eponine ends up being basically a street rat. So, um, you know, while you're right, there's never really a lot of character development, I guess, from for uh, generally speaking, it's just that juxtaposition. Because you're right, there's probably more character development in Epon with Eponine throughout which what's make her such a such a tragic character? She she's you know many many people's favorite, um, and you know Eponine has the more um, soulful altoish kind of songs, where uh, Cosette is more of the typical soprano shrilly kind of you know voice, you know, and I uh, it seems to me that we all prefer, although everyone can appreciate a top-notch soprano, I think, you know, everyone seems to connect more with the, uh, the alto, the alto voice range. Maybe it's because alto, uh, somehow connects more with the testament of the survival of the human spirit more than a soprano. Cause they can just sing whatever the hell they want to. Cause they, their voice is so high. Who knows? Yeah. So I, I just um, I, I pulled up the the wiki page for the novel by nice. Victor Hugo. There are five volumes, and again, I've never read it, so I don't know. But but there are five volumes. Volume one is Fantine. Volume two is Cosette. Ah. Volume three is Marius. Volume four is the Ideal in Rue Plumet and the Epic on the Rue Saint Denis. And volume five is Jean Valjean. Wow. So Cosette gets her own volume. So I'm going to guess that she huh. has significant character development. We may, we just may have to dig into uh, to the story. We we may have to, or maybe we can get it on audio. Mm, that, may, that, that might be better. That may be a good way to do it. So, um, you know, and, and I don't know how deep we want to go into this, um, where we want to go with this. I well, do know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, there's two, there's, there's two major things, I think, in the production 
that were a stark difference from all of the other productions that we've seen up to date. So I think it's worth touching on, on both of those things. Yes, please. The, the first thing was the removal of the turntable stage, right? The rotating stage. That's right. Yes. I would forgotten about that. So the, one of the hallmarks of Les Mis was that the, 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 the center of the stage was this big like record, like it was a turntable and it would spin around. So, you know, at the beginning of the, of the story with the prologue where Jean Valjean is going through his thing, getting out of the chain gang, you know, not being able to get a job and all this as he's on his journey, he is, you know, running or walking and through the scenery and it looks like he's actually walking and going places because the floor is actually moving underneath him. And throughout the, um, the whole, the whole performance, there are these different, um, different things that happen with the rotating stage. And there's definitely sort of a, a je ne sais quoi. Is that the right uh, way to say that? Um, yeah. About the rotating stage. I wanted to throw some French in. Very uh, nice. So, and like, you know, like that part that I discussed, like the first time that Marius and Cosette meet or when, when Marius is outside of her, her house and, you know, that it kind of spins around. So you can see both sides of the gate as they do their introduction. The That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. The, the barricade which, you know, as things happen, the barrack, the whole barricade would swing around and you would, you would see Gavrash on the other side, picking bullets out of the guys, which was, um, which was always a, a incredible moment. Um, and, uh, and they, they sort of, and a couple of other things throughout, throughout the whole, the whole, um, performance. And, um, you know, instead they, you know, they did a really interesting job with the barricade, like, you know, Gavrach, the little kid, he's, he's out there, they flipped it around and you actually saw him getting shot and like, oh, dying, where, you know, here it was like, you knew he was on the other side and he was trying to come across, you know, you didn't see him, you, you saw him climbing over trying to get to the top and as he got over, they, you know, they shot him and he died into someone's arm. Like the way they did it was pretty pretty impressive, pretty incredible. Um, it was, it, it was just very different. And then they decided to add these sort of two balconies on either side of the stage, you know, for, you know, the Jean Valjean's house and the scenes with Cosette and Marius and, and, um, you know, while it definitely w was visually appealing, it added some balance to the stage. I thought, um, I, you know, it didn't, I don't think it really did much to, you know, to it, it, it was it certainly wasn't what I would say glorious new staging by putting those those items in there. Um, I don't even know if I would say it was a dazzling re reimagination of the scenery. I, you know, I and I, I had totally forgotten about the um, about the turntable and and particularly as it applies to the scenes at the gate because I. I until you mentioned, I totally forgot that you had seen one side of the gate and then they rotated it so you could see both sides at, yeah. at the same time. Because with the way it was staged now, obviously the gate didn't move, so you're sort of on the inside, if you will, and mm. then every time someone behind the gate had something to sing, they would move out 
to the right beyond the gate and yeah. then they would move back in which yes. struck me as a little odd but I, I i hadn't remembered the turntable which is why it struck me as odd yes one of one of the things that that i sort of liked near the end was the the visual production associated with um, certainly the the sewer scenes yes how, how they how they created the sense of of motion with the visuals behind as opposed to the turntable on the stage exactly um, now, the sewer scene dude was off the charts that was that was awesome <laughs> you know cuz that that struck me as something that was truly a little bit different and that was a dazzling reimagined scenery for sure. <laughs> I personally sort of, I thought it was a very cool way to represent that. And I thought, you know, while it was a little bit more quote unquote modern, it, it very aptly did what they wanted it to do. I think maybe more so than the, the twin towers on either side. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was the other big piece of the change right there. They took the turntable away and then they added, um, and it, I guess it was inspired by Victor Hugo's paintings. Um, but they, they added all of these incredible graphics and they moved them. And you just saw this two days ago. So you can probably describe this way better than I can after, after month, but, um, the scene, um, for Javert's soliloquy, at the end, when he jumps off the bridge, um, I just have it. I just wrote down that it was amazing, and I remember after watching it, I remember literally like kind of looking side by side, you know, at at people and like as if to say, "Did you guys just see that? What, what did you see that? That was incredible." <laughs> And I don't even remember at this point what he did. Like, I don't know, you know, like the original scene was always amazing because, you know, he kind of jumped on the front of the bridge and, you know, he motioned like he was jumping and then they lifted the bridge really fast and it made it look like he was falling. Um, it's pretty much the same. Okay. It was, there was just this sort of slow motion 3d effect that with the, with the, painting and everything moving behind him that it was like he was moving in slow motion. I, I, I really couldn't believe it. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that's what the difference is. It was with that animation behind him and, and the way that they, they applied that mm. is, is what gave you the difference. It was, yeah. it, it was spectacular. I thought. So it was, you know, it, it's, is funny the right word I'm going for? Whatever. Um, you know, th there, are, there are certain, and here's a word that I hate to use, but I have to use it. There are certain tropes in musical productions that you have to have. So one of those is, you know, and, and this is one that I actually like and I respond to very well, is the, 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 the anguished soliloquy and oftentimes suicide of the mm -hmm. tortured, abused character. Yeah. So Javert does this. Um, obviously, you know, the, 
the death of Judas and Jesus Christ Superstar is another perfect example. Mm. Although I think it, for me, that's the shining example of this. Mm. Um, but I, I do, um, I, I, I always like this scene with, with Javert because, you know, his, his character has, it, it displays such a vulnerability that, you know, he's been so sure of everything this whole time. And now he has, he just, he can't handle the fact that, oh crap, I may have been wrong. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's too much for him, which it's, it's tragic, but it's very moving at the same time. Oh my like, gosh. It is. And, and, and it's funny, you know, and I, I hadn't thought of this. I literally just thought of this right now. It's amazing because having seen this obviously more than once, when, when, when the production, when the musical opens, I find myself, I, I never hate Javert because I know he's a tragic character. Mm -hmm. And, and even, you know, I don't remember what it was like the first time, but, but, you know, certainly, you know, from the get go now, the first time you see him, you feel that sort of sympathy for him because, you know, he just doesn't know any better. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there's, there are, there is at least one time where, you know, Valjean says, you know, to him, you know, says to, to him to the effect of, you know, I don't, I don't hold it against you. Right. You're, you know, it's probably when he lets him go. Right. Which is, which, which, which throws Javert into his, his into his um, problems and soliloquy, but it, it you know, he is the tragic character. He's doing his job. He is doing what he believes is the right thing to do, no matter how crazy it seems to, to us as the audience. And, um, and uh, this might be a, a good time to just kind of talk a little bit about the cast. Javert was played by Josh Davis. And um, I felt like, you know, I, I felt, you know, the performance that I saw, it seemed like, Javert and Valjean, so Josh Davis and ja the Valjean, I'll get to him in a second. It seemed like they were told right before the show that there was a curfew at the uh, theater we were at, and they had to get the show finished by 1030. Um, because, because all of their, a lot of their uh, scenes where they, you know, sort of song spoke the, um, the lines seemed to be incredibly rushed. Mm. Aside from that, though, he he conveyed the conflict that Javert has, I thought, to epic proportions, and just and just really made it. It was a it was a very beautiful dramatic performance by him, as well as powerhouse vocals. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was it was great. I I thought yeah I thought um, yeah so apparently we've got this the same the same company because I had. Josh Davis as Javert as well, and I really thought that Javert was was the star of the show. Um, so Nick Cartel as Jean Valjean, generally speaking, was okay. I didn't kind of lose my crap with him until Bring Him Home. Hmm. Bring Him Home obviously just knocked it out of the park for me. Yeah. Um, but before we get too far into the cast, I did want to talk about one other. Yeah. standard musical trope that I I understand why it's there. I sometimes wish that it wasn't. And that is the campy 
comic relief number. Ah, right. So in, in this particular, you know, case that is is taken care of by Tenardier and his wife, and again, just to continue to draw the Jesus Christ Superstar parallel because I love that musical so much. Hmm. Um, that would be the King Herod song in that particular case. And, right. and, and it's almost like you have all this heavy-duty stuff going on, and it's like, oh, let's take a break and put a fun number in there. And yeah. that kind of bump, 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 bump thing going, you know, and it's just, it, it's fun, and I understand why it has to be there, but I could personally be very, very happy if it never was. Yeah, and, you know, particularly, you know, I put the note in, so I believe it's Anthony Crane and Allison Gwynn who are the, who are the two, and they did a fabulous job. I would say that their interpretation and this whole production's interpretation of these characters is way over the top. And, and, and it was over the top. Like as soon as I was like, okay, they're just completely going over the top with this. It was a lot of fun. And you, like you said, it's the comic relief. It's a good juxtaposition to all of the shit drama that's going on. And uh, it's just fun to kind of just let your emotions rest for a second and enjoy a good hearty laugh. Um, they, they did a great job, but I agree with you. It was kind of over for me. It was over the top to the point where I was like, okay, guys, all right, let's take a step back here. <laughs> let's, let's dial it in. Yeah. Yeah. Now one of, so those, those were the, the two sort of overarching things that I wanted mm. to talk about. One of the things that you had mentioned to me when we first started texting about this after you had seen it, if I remember correctly, you seem to be in near rapture over the performance of Eponine. I was, in fact. So I'm following a few members of the touring cast on Instagram um, because of this performance. And, um, and so Eponine was played by Phoenix Best in Philadelphia, and it was actually one of her last stints with the, the cast. So okay. she was she was gone, and I left there. I remember walking out of the theater and saying to my sister D, I, I said, "I think that was the best Eponine I've ever seen in in seeing Les Mis. I just thought her voice was incredible, and I I thought she stole the show." And, and I'm glad to hear that it was not the same person that I saw because I went, to, <laughs> I went to my performance and I was I was waiting to be blown away by Eponine. Oh. Um, and I was not. Oh, jeez. I, I was I was I was very concerned as to you know did I miss something? Here? <laughs> what, what what is there something wrong with me? But you know clearly that is you know we had we had a different performer and uh, so that was good. Now that being said. You know, Eponine, I, Eponine is another one of those characters where she's, she's just tragic. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I think that is conveyed very powerfully in, in the story. I absolutely love, um, the first, I want to say it's the first time that Marius and Cosette meet at the gate. And at yeah. this point in the staging, Eponine moves off to the side, and that's the first utterance of the line, he was never mine to lose. Yes. Which is, oh, it's heartrending. Yes. 
and 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 you know of course you know Valjean you know reprises that line later mm-hmm. on when yes. he ends up giving Cosette to to Marius but uh oh man when when Eponine sings that it's just like oh yeah <laughs> and and you know she like i think her character like you know who in life who in life has not experienced that unrequited love right and right and so it's so easy to connect with her uh, in that, and and you see how you know she'll literally do anything from from Marius, and um, and you know it makes a little fall of rain one of the highlights of the entire musical because it's it's just so powerful and 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 so dramatic and such a such a a bittersweet end to her her tragic character. Yeah, it, it, it really, really is. I, yeah, uh, you know, I, wow. Yeah, so, you know, I, you know, really kind of geeked out and I hunted down Phoenix Best on Instagram and I tagged her on a post and was like, you're the best Eponine ever. And she was <laughs> like, gee, thanks. I, th- I want to say Phoenix Best, when you and I were first being introduced to, to, um, uh, Les Mis, I want to say Phoenix Best was like a, was like in third grade or something silly like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I did read an interesting article that, you know, it was like one of her, she was, apparently she was from the Philadelphia area, I think. So oh, like, she, cool. yeah, she was super stoked to get a chance to, to, you know, win the audition and, and become a part of the cast. And, um, and, uh, it's, it's pretty cool. So here's something interesting that happened the night and remember, I was I I saw this in January, which was high tide of the flu season out here in the Philadelphia area. So I don't know if this had anything to do with it. I cannot remember who started the evening as Jean Valjean. I want to say it was actually the understudy, Christopher Viljoen or Viljean or whatever his name is. I can't pronounce his last name. Sorry, Chris. But he be, one of them began the first act. And then just before the second act started, they announced that the character Jean Valjean will now be played by the other guy. So they switched characters halfway through. Are you kidding? I was like, and and then for, I think the first song that Valjean has to sing in act two is bring him home. And I'm like, they bring this dude in. He was like, he was taking the night off. He was like, you know, in the ensemble. And all of a sudden he's thrust into the, into the main the main role. And I do want to say that it was, it was Nick Cartel's night off. And then for whatever reason, halfway through, he had to jump back on. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, and he did, he did do a phenomenal job um, with bring him home uh, and, and everything else. Um, and, you know, and, and like I had said earlier, I had gone into this cold, so I hadn't, you know, I, I hadn't even listened to this in, mm. I don't even know how long double digit years. And so when, when bring him home happened, you know, cause there, there's a lot about the, the, the barricade sequence that doesn't necessarily, you know, excite me. Yeah. But to have that sort of in the middle of it and it's, yeah, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so then, like I said, when, and then obviously at the end, when 
you know, it, there, there's so much about the, the, the emotion at the end there when, when Valjean tries to keep hidden everything that he's done and then he finally confesses all the things that he thinks he's done and, you know, obviously Thenardier tries to sort of rat him out and in what he actually does is he, you know, shines a light on, on all of the, the wonderful stuff that Valjean did and then, you know, you get that you know that that last scene where you know mm. Valjean's ready to, to to pack it in, and there's there's a part of that that I'll get to here in just a second that kind of weirds me out. Um, and, you know, when Fantine shows up, and then Cosette and Marius show up, and you know it, he he gets sort of that that redemption. He gets the the payoff for all of the hard work he's done to yes. right the wrongs. Yes. You know, because and and we had, we kind of skipped over that. I, I knowing knowing the story, and and I probably even the first time. You know, when he steals the silver, and everyone captures him, and he's telling you know they're telling him the story that he's told them, and the bishop comes in and says that's absolutely true. Yes, and yeah. you're just like, whoa, that's you know because that's that's amazing, and. Um, you know, so, you know, Valjean did the right thing and, and you know, he got his just reward. The, yeah. the one thing about that last scene that sort of is weird with me is Valjean's ready to die. Fontaine shows up because she's already dead and says, hey, come with me. It's going to be OK. Cosette comes in and says, I'm not going to let you die. And Valjean says, yes, don't let me die. And then he dies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh it's a minor thing you know at that point you just you, you know because you get the the big crescendo ending and everyone's happy but it's just right. you know from a from a, a you know a pedantic point of view it's like eh, let's you know yeah it's you know it's funny i you know i've always thought that was sort of um him saying, you know, yes, you know, yes, yes, exactly. Forbid me to die. Don't, you know, tell me that you don't want me to go. That's, you know, I, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to obey you, but you know, cause I want to, I want to be here with you now that finally that I realize that everything's okay. And, um, you know, but yeah, you're right. It is kind of like, uh, it, it is kind of like, uh, it is kind of interesting. Yeah. I I wouldn't have picked up on it because I was I was at this point too busy, just like crying my eyes out because I, I just I don't know what it is about um, my emotional state these days or just the way that they. It's almost like somehow in this new production they have jacked up the emotional quality, or it's just because everybody. Uh, probably the the vast majority of people who have seen this production has already seen Les Mis. They already know all the music and they've somehow just kind they know what's going to get us and they, and, and they just like milk it for all it's worth. And it certainly worked for me. Cause I, 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 I my tears, my eyes were barely dry the whole night. It's crazy. Awesome. I love it. Fantastic. 
Is there anything else on your copious notes that we haven't covered that you feel that we need to? Uh, you know, I've, there's a lot we haven't looked at, but as I read through them, there's not much um, I think is worthy. I think one of the things that I noticed was that they did some changes to the score, and they always do this. They shorten numbers, they they add things, they change orchestration. There are a couple of things that they did um, that kind of I didn't like as much. Um there's some, some powerful moments. You, you mentioned the moments about, you know, when uh, Valjean says, you know, or um, Eponine says he was never mine to, to lose. Or, and there's a couple of great moments like that with Valjean, like the beginning of his of the prologue where he gets to the end and he realizes he, he cannot go on in life carrying around his parole papers and trying to survive with the identity that he has. And he says, you know, he gets to that part where I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. And right before that, he, he, it's like this, this pause. And he's like, I am reaching, but I fall. And I'm cast into the void of a world that cannot hold, whatever the words are. And then, you know, then he says, I'll escape now from the world, the world of Jean Valjean. And in Javert's soliloquy, just before he jumps off the bridge, he says the same thing. He sings the same part. And they sort of took out all of the music and they created sort of this tense, this tense background sort of sound. And it was, it's very modern. It's very cool, very hip, if you will, but it's, it just wasn't musical. And so I kind of get what they were going for. You know, it, it certainly when they're talking about as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold, you know, you get the sense that they're in a void. Um, but I just would prefer, I prefer my voids with music in them. So, <laughs> well, that's, so that's totally fair. I'm glad you, you did bring up the score because there were a couple of instances where, like you said, the, the orchestration was, was different. It was more modern. Um, in some regards, it was it was more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Natural, organic. Um, you know, when I went back and listened to my my uh, my CD, you know, it, it has that sort of late '80s, you know, vibe to it. It's there, there's there's a yeah heavy, there's a heavy electronic component to it. Right. Okay. That that was missing from from mm. this particular production, and and I I enjoyed that as a whole. Um, it it didn't sound in any way, shape, or form dated. Like if you mm. go to see Phantom today, it still sounds like it was scored in nineteen eighty. Interesting. Whatever. Yes. You know. So you like um, you like the modernization of the uh, of the score? I did. I yeah. did. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I think I prefer the datedness, uh, you know, <laughs> which is probably no surprise since we're on a progressive rock uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So um, so just yeah. one last shout out to Jillian Butler, because even though we sort of poo-pooed Cosette's character as the blase soprano, uh, she did a fabulous job. And wow. uh, I, I follow her on Instagram and like her uh, like her little antics that she has. I love the best part about these guys following them on Instagram is I guess they have some nights that are off in between tours. And it seems like when they have those nights off, they go and they just binge on junk food. 
it's the, really? and they and they post about it. It's 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 very entertaining. And we may as well throw a shout out to to Joshua Grosso, who um, who kicked ass as Marius. I thought I thought he his vocal performance was was pretty stunning. Yeah, I um, I definitely um, I definitely responded to him as well. I uh, definitely give those shout outs. Yes. Although I actually had a different Marius. Oh, okay. I had Robert Ariza was my Marius. Awesome. So we'll give a shout out to him as well. I love it. Marius Marius is a hard part to fuck up, I think. I think it's um, you know, but There's it sounds like but, there? Yeah. I think both these guys uh sounds like they did a great job. All right, so outstanding. So, our homework our homework assignment is for you to find your lamest beach towel, Joe. I I, if if it exists, <laughs> I know exactly where it is. <laughs> so, Paul, this has been wonderful talking about um, Les Mis, a, a super fantastic production. I'm glad it's touring again. I'm glad I we both got the chance to uh, to see it. And um, yeah, so we will um, we'll come back and, and talk about some other things as they come up. Excellent. So for all of you listening at home, thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of Progressive Palaver as we went, com well, not completely off topic. This is probably less off topic than Star Wars, but... Um, probably. In 1980, Joe, was that was the year of drama and maybe Duke. Is that right? Was that, am I correct in that? Around the uh, same time frame, right? Yeah, yeah. Duke, I think, I forget when Duke was. Duke may have been a, I, I don't remember. Well, it, it was... Duke Brown there. It was certainly a prime time for progressive music, and uh, it was right through many transitions of tran of progressive music, and uh, this fits right in. Sorry. Absolutely. So, for those of you who listen to Progressive Palaver and have enjoyed Les Mis, we, we welcome any experiences and thoughts and comments that you have had. You can reach us through the normal channels of communication. We are available on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at progpala on each of those. Or you can email us at progpala at gmail.com. And Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play. And we're hosted on SoundCloud. Until next time.
Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album, and sometimes, like tonight, talking about off-Broadway musicals. In this case... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was funny. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to take you by surprise. <laughs> Did you have that written out already, or was that just spontaneous? That was spontaneous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. That was great. Sorry. So, so tonight I'm. Uh, uh, so I'm. I'm. <laughs> I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this special. 